Hello, everybody, and welcome to State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and for this first episode of 2017, what matters is chatting with one of the most engaging and thoughtful commentators in the game, none other than the legendary Dottie Pepper. We'll introduce Dottie in just a moment. But first, my co-host, as always from the US, owner of the game's best golf blog, author, critic, golf channel regular, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, Happy New Year, and uh, what a way to start for us, a chat with Dottie Pepper. Yes, absolutely. Happy New Year. It's been uh, too long. I think we said that the last show, and, and, uh, before, and good to be back, and, and lots to, to, uh, to chew on. Yeah, always lots to chew on. Plenty of meat on the golf bone, as they say. From here in Australia, commentator, architect, former touring pro, magazine columnist, etc., etc., it's Mike Clayton. Clates, you get the applause for doing the legwork this time to get Dottie on the show. Good work on that. Happy New Year, and really looking forward to the next hour or so. Thanks, Ryan. It will be very interesting, I'm sure. I don't doubt that in any way, shape or form. Last, but by no means least, in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a great pleasure and, frankly, a little bit of an honour to have Dottie join us today. Dottie's a 17-time LPGA Tour winner, including two majors of what's now the A&A tournament, better known as the Dinah Shore, of course, to those of us of a certain generation. Also played on six Solheim Cup teams, but now better known for her work these days in her capacity as one of the most respected commentators on TV. We could go on, Dottie, but we won't. Uh, we really want to pick your brain about the game and everything else that's around it. Welcome, and let's get started. <laughs> let's get started. Thank let's you. Indeed. Now, Dottie, the first thing I want to tell you, you must have heard that introduction or a version of it that I just went through there hundreds of times. Do you recognize that Dottie Pepper? That seems like uh, virtually a lifetime ago, frankly. I, um, you know, I, I tweeted out uh, a week ago or so when I was getting ready to go to uh, – Latin America championship. I, I got, I, I had to figure out how many years it had been since I actually packed for a golf tournament and had been just doing this commentary thing. It's been 14 years. I mean, that, that's, that's for some people a lifetime ago. It's a career, um, isn't it? It's a whole other career. Yeah, it's a second career. Yeah. yeah uh, so it, it's, um, I mean, I, I yeah, it seems like it was it was a different life. It, it really does. Um, now I want to make you a, a I don't have any calluses anymore. That's for sure. Don't have any what? Sorry. I don't have any calluses on my hands no. anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, that's nice. Now, I want to make you a guinea pig for a little, uh, little segment I'd like to introduce to the show this year. I haven't told the boys about this. Don't be nervous about it. But I thought there's a – I've been thinking over the break. There's a really interesting question that we should ask people, and the answer might just lead to a whole bunch of interesting discussion. And it's just to finish this sentence for me, Dottie. The thing about golf is – what's the thing about golf, do you reckon? It can never be mastered. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that that goes in lots of different directions. Whether um, you're trying to play it, whether you're trying to appreciate what others have done before, whether you're when you when you jump into architecture and look back at masterpieces and disasters. I, I think um, when you're looking at golf television, I don't think you can ever master that. I mean, people's. Um, where they the way they take in golf, what they expect of golf is all different, and and I think there's so many facets to it that, that can just never be mastered, but always appreciated. Mm. It's part of the appeal, I suppose. It's the never-ending journey. There is no destination in golf, is there? You never get there. Yeah, indeed. No, not- you already mentioned, Dottie. It's been you've been doing the the television part of your career for a long time. Now. I think 2005 might have been your first uh, your first dip at television. Did you know then? that you'd be good at it and importantly still doing it all this time later? 
Oh, uh, well, thank you for saying I'm good at it. <laughs> I'm not the only one, Dottie, as you know. And I know it's well, you, don't want to be, but you don't want to be too full of yourself, I, but you know you're good at it. You do. I, I like to work at it. And, and I think if you're going to be adequate at anything, you, you never uh, you never stop trying to get better. And, and I think um, that that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I still listen to a lot of the shows we do, and that came on the recommendation of Mike Tirico, who kind of took me under his wing early on. And I also have uh, my boss at ESPN, who is his whole motto is we're going to get better every day we do this. And he is um, never shy to critique, but also compliment. And and I think uh, the minute you try, the minute you get sort of lackadaisical, it's the minute that you start to make sloppy mistakes. And, And I think, that was the way I tried to prepare as a player, and I, I try to do the same thing um, working in television now. Jeff, you've, uh, you're one who watches TV goal fairly closely, and you're one who critiques commentators. What does what does Dotty bring? We had Judy Rankin on the show. Dotty, golf commentary royalty. Frankly, that was a, a genuine. Royal. Yeah, I, I record. I recorded on my knees, Dotty. <laughs> as the queen within yeah, the industry absolutely and and <laughs> rightly so but jeff i remember when we chatted with judy she was just such a an incredible sort of presence and a wonderful personality but you're a close watcher of the game what does dotty bring to commentary do you think we'll get on to other stuff about the game but we want to talk about dotty first because we don't don't get the chance to talk to her very often but uh, what does dotty bring to the the golf commentary that perhaps others don't or that makes her special or stand out Oh yeah, this is this is not awkward at all. We have to kind of, we we have to talk about it right in front of her. Yeah. Rod. Good uh, God. Well, try and say no, nice it, things, Jeff. Which I know I think, is not your I forte. Think, uh, I think Dottie knows this. Uh, I don't know who instilled this in her, but I think that she resonates with people um, because she uh, gets in and out quickly, and she gives you the most pertinent information you need at that moment as a viewer watching that player on the golf course. And then she gets out of the way. And I think that viewers really, whether they know it or not, they appreciate it because there's just nothing worse than, than an announcer who's just kind of rambling on and talking over a player caddy conversation or just telling you things you already know. Um, and then if, if something needs to be said about a situation, she says it uh, or gives you what she's seeing on the ground as an on-course reporter. And I think that's why she's she's so incredible at it. And uh, I did feel like, though, Dottie, I'd be curious. I'd like to know kind of going into year two on the West Coast Swing and then and then the rest of the season for CBS, uh, which is starting up here next week for you, um, how you felt like it went that well, first year and, and what, if anything, you've kind of uh, hoped to be doing this year more of or what you've discussed with Lance Barrett. Well, I, I think it, it was definitely a, yeah, a, a major adjustment uh, because completely different system at, at NBC, CBS, and ESPN. Completely different. Um, not even mm. just from, from my position being a walking reporter, but even the way the main truck is set up and how, how shots on tape are handled – um, preparation, it's all very, very different. Um, CBS is a little more laid back. NBC was more hardwired. Um, ESPN was somewhere in the middle. And there was a sense of timing that was definitely different at, at CBS because walkers 
if people in my capacity uh, on the golf course call shots that are on tape. And mm. while that was the case at ESPN, I actually have a monitor uh, that I have a, a person out there with me that I, I can watch the show. And Peter Costas can watch the show. So I, I think what I need to get better at this year, and this is something I, I've been you know, just looking forward to this year. And how, like I said before, how do you get better? But it's not so much telling people the things that they can see, but relaying the things that I've, I'm feeling and seeing in between those shots. I need to do a better job of relaying that. And, and I think that's what we tried to do at the Latin America Amateur Championship uh, in mm. Panama. And I think it, it worked out because there are things that you can't pick up as a cameraman or, or a director that the player's doing. And, and being on the ground... That's what I can relay to the viewers. Um, but getting back to um, looking, you know, trying to get in and out of shots quickly, that's my friend Judy Rankin, who said, say as many things as you can in as few words as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter, yeah. Twitter before Twitter, Dottie. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe she was on to something yeah, a long yeah. time ago. But, but as, the, as the second or third walker, even as, as the walker with the lead group, that director's not going to wait for you. If there's something else that's happened on the golf course, it's your job to get in and get out of there so that they can show people more good pictures and they can keep people up with the drama that's on the golf course. Because at the end of the day, they're not tuning in to listen to a commentator. They're, look, they're giving up their time to watch the sporting, yeah. the competition, the players. And – I think it's incumbent upon uh, commentators to let that happen. Dottie, you said something really interesting there, and I suppose for those of us who go to the golf and sometimes we might follow a group for a full 18 holes, I, I, I doubt most spectators ever do that. I'm sure some do from time to time, but inside the ropes, you see a real lot of stuff. I mean, TV just comes to the shots, doesn't it? But an awful lot of things happen between those shots that tell you about what's happening in around and with a player, don't they? Is that the sort of thing you get out? Body language and how discussions are going with the caddy, all those sorts of things that never get shown on TV. That, that's exactly right. It's, it's that gap time mm. between shots where you'll see um, – you know, a player's gone to the restroom four times because we're getting really nervous. <laughs> or um, you just, I've seen players get in a situation where they literally couldn't swallow. Um, they were just so, so um, overcome by the moment. And that's what the walking reporter can relay to the viewer because most of that's not seen on camera because you have so many other shots, so many other plays that are happening at the same time that, that it's it's virtually impossible indeed last thing on the tv thing before we come to more general sort of topics about golf of course your first masters last year at augusta national uh, what was that like uh to make a debut there to be a rookie and then what are you looking forward to this year i'm guessing that both the asia pacific amateur and the latin american amateur in some ways are sort of um rehearsals and uh ways to improve for you guys who do the coverage it's, they're essentially the same teams in a lot of ways aren't they yeah, um, the, the Asia Pacific and the Latin America events are, are produced by Sellers Shy, who is is a producer within the CBS system. Um, I didn't think I was very good last year at the Masters, to be honest with you. I was I was really nervous. I didn't feel like I was necessarily prepared all that well because I'd never been in a tower in the CBS situation. I'd always been on the ground and spent most of my time um, walking. But as most people, well. A lot of people don't realize there are no walking 
reporters at the Masters. So it's a completely different setup from a television standpoint. Um, and and being, um, being comfortable in, in that sort of flow in how how the golf course unfolds, how Thursday and Friday and how things um, really become much clearer on Saturday and the flow between the holes. So I, that was one of my, from a performance standpoint, one of my disappointing weeks last year. I thought I had a couple okay afternoons, but um, that's a number one job is to be better prepared and more uh, anticipating what will be thrown at me at the Masters. It's got to be the deepest of the deep end in terms of being a golf commentator, doesn't it? I mean, like anybody who makes the field at the Masters to make the commentary team at the Masters, and the first woman, which is not insignificant, I would imagine, in some ways. Um, there's a bit of added pressure there as well. I mean, as if there's not enough pressure at the Masters. Uh, so you can be forgiven, I think, if you weren't feeling your best. But I'm guessing you'll tell me this year's going to be much better for you. I, I think I'll be... I'll be um, I'll be more comfortable, and and I think maybe my natural cadence, my natural way I speak about golf, will hopefully come through in a, in a better way. Indeed, um, and we're all looking forward to the Masters. It's never too early to talk about the Masters, Dottie, and I'm sure oh. it'll uh, it'll get a it'll get a Guernsey at some point. On to topics that Clates might be more interested. I know he's sitting there interesting, listening intently, but some things that uh, might interest Clates a little bit more. I wanted to talk about some of the uh, issues around the game. Now, I don't know whether you saw this, Dottie. I'm assuming you did. I know Jeff did because he put a couple of posts up about it. An incredibly interesting and lengthy interview with Rory McIlroy over the last two weeks in the Irish Independent, which was quite revealing in a lot of ways. But one of the points that he touched on, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this particularly, because I know you did a stint with the PGA in a grow-the-game capacity, and Rory's quote was something along the lines of, I really hate the term grow-the-game. And he got in trouble with this at the Open last year, doesn't see it as his responsibility to grow the game. But the point he made was the game's been here for eons before us, and it'll be here for eons after us. Uh, and he hates the whole grow the game thing. What was your take on that? Did you see that? And and what, what's your take on the grow the game that we seem to hear so much about? I hate that term. <laughs> I, I think to me it just says monetize. Um, I want to make people fall in love with the game, not grow the game, because if we fall in love with it, we're going to grab everybody along. And I think it's mano a mano, woman to woman. If you get stuck on the game, you're going to make other people love it just by your enthusiasm about it. And, and I, I, I get what he's saying. I, I don't, I don't love the, the lingo. Um, I, I, I just feel like when that comes out of somebody's mouth, they're asking for money <laughs> and I want them to fall in love with golf and get other people to share their passion and pass it along to youngsters. And I, I just, I get what he's saying. Mm. I, I think it becomes, um, becomes part of that jargon of the boardroom where if we get I, I don't know I don't know I don't know what the right lingo is or even if there is but I want people to love the game for all those things that we talked about we talked about earlier when you made me finish that sentence it's a, it, well it still is an intriguing game as it was Clates we, I know we've talked about this before, but did you see that that thing with Rory and there's a bunch of other stuff in there that'll probably come up as we chat as well that he talked about and what was your thoughts on him sort of saying that I kind of felt like in some ways he might have taken the lid off for a bunch of other players to maybe start agreeing with that now that he said it that the whole grow the game is really just a grow the cover for grow the business when in fact growing the game is a much you know getting more people to play the game to enjoy it as Dottie says should be the end goal 
Yeah, it seems to me like it's like that term signature hole. I read that yesterday somewhere. I mean, everyone detests that Trent Jones thing of signature hole, which he started. And grow the game seems like it comes. It only ever comes from the manufacturers and the people who are supposed to stay at, like the golf unions. So I, you know, I think we're all on the same page about you know you fall in love with golf, and it's you know, and it's not a game for everybody, and it's a you know, it's it's somewhat exclusionary at times, but you know, it's a game that gives everyone a chance to play it, and for, for the people who love it, then great, but. You know, you know, the grow of the game seems to come from, as I said, from manufacturers who are selling stuff to us, who are bringing out three lots of drivers every year. And you know, I mean, they're obsessed with the ball going further. And yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes shrink the game might be a good thing. But and, and you know, I mean, perhaps that extrapolates out into the difficulties. I mean, Adidas, Adidas still selling TaylorMade and Nike getting out of the equipment business is that. You know, these are shoe companies who have delved into the golf business and found it not very profitable because it's not easy. And, you know, I mean, I mean, the game would be better if it reverted back to golf companies, Callaway and Titleist, and well, they've got their issues, and, and McGregor and Wilson and Spalding, and you know, the old companies that were golf companies, and you know, the people who are trying to grow the game aren't even golf companies in many cases. At the risk of delving into grumpy old man territory, Shaq, I'm sure that you've got some thoughts <laughs> sitting there itching to share with us. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, we fully support the grumpy old man stage of life. But um, I'm sure you've got some thoughts out on what Rory had to say. And I know it was one of the, the things you pulled out of it, more than 8,000 words, I think that part one was. And you pulled that out in particular to sort of highlight, which I thought was interesting. And, and just some, some of your thoughts on what Rory had to say. And, well, and part thing. of the reason I found it interesting is that he's given a lot of press conferences where he has said – has used the phrase and discussed it and it was just a big reversal for him to finally just come right out and, and say that. Um, but I don't think it really was a reversal. I think his heart is in the right place. He likes kids seeing them enjoy the game. He likes to inspire people. Um, I think he just has, has gotten older and he has seen that as Dottie pointed out, a lot of this is just, uh, driven by, uh, the people who who have a commercial interest, I, I'm a big fan of sustain the game as a as a phrase. If we're going to have to have one, um, because I think that's just a more important. Everything should be driven towards uh, sustaining it uh, and keeping it healthy. But uh, the and then the growth will happen if it's a healthy sport, and uh, it it just seems to kind of those two. I think that's where these these groups get lost is is this uh, obsession with growth, and they don't really think of the people who are already in the game, and it turns some of those people off uh, pretty easily. Um, so I I I loved uh, I loved his honesty. I thought it was uh, sensational. I wish he was. Uh, more honest about other things uh, when when pressed. He, he he revealed a fair bit. You know, what about share the game? Right. Let's go with share the right. game. Yeah. How about that for an idea? And you know, if that a passionate golfer too. introduces you to the game, as you said, Dottie, you can't help but be infected by someone who is completely obsessed with something, can you? Even if it's something you've never had an interest in before. Yeah, that's right. And and I think you know to go back to Rory a little bit too. I think he was just fed up with getting pestered over the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And being put in an uncomfortable situation. And, you know, I, I, I think he was put in a very tough position by, by the questions that were asked by his. He tends to be very honest about stuff like that. And, and I also think it was a really difficult position because he was also an ambassador for, uh, for, the, for the PGA of America. And, and, and I think it for drive, chip, and putt. And, and, and I think 
are, are all, you know, all these grow the game initiatives. So it, it sounded worse because of his, his whole situation and the, and the stage that it was set on. But I, I totally get it. And, and I think he just had enough. He fulfills his responsibilities, doesn't he, Dottie, in the sense that he entertains and young people who have an interest in golf, there is no doubt a, a large percentage of them, like he wanted to be Tiger, they will want to be Rory. And just by doing that in itself, and, and for the most part, he's a pretty good role model to those kids as well, I think. And that, that fulfills that responsibility, doesn't it, to bring people in? I mean, he, he works hard, he plays hard. Have you ever seen him give up? Yeah. Never. Um, that's well, not quite. That's not quite true, is it, Dottie? There, there was the Honda <laughs> Classic incident, which wasn't well, his. That's uh, the, what, wasn't his oh, I had a dentist for him down there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's exactly right. But you know, uh, it, it seemed to me, Shaq, and I know you would have read both parts of it. It was almost a. Um, that was an interesting interview for him to take part in, wasn't it? And to be as open as he was. It was almost a public statement of he said a lot of things straight there he has been guilty in the past hasn't he as i think a lot of players who have sponsors have of saying things they didn't really believe in but and then later wishing they hadn't i think adam scott falls into that category with the olympics when it was first announced golf was going to be in the olympics he was all rah 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 on the titles website of course when the year rolled around he wasn't interested but do you think that's been something interesting about that particular interview with McElroy jeff do you see a, a change in rory and what we might see in 2017 from him having sort of bared his soul the way he did uh, it's hard to say. I, I guess because <clears throat> I would have I would have agreed with you until he injured himself down in South Africa and blamed it on hitting too many golf balls, uh, testing clubs. I, I'm, I'm that one's just not uh, passing the smell test for me. So I feel like he he as as wonderfully honest as he was in in that interview with uh, Paul Kilmage, I believe it was, and uh, uh, Kimmage. And uh, I, but then he this is what 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 he does uh and i understand it you're injured it's annoying you're you're pissed off you're you're frustrated you've been working hard um but like tiger there is this sort of defensiveness i mean they they benefit a lot from working out and and building up strength and presenting a a, a body image that gives them confidence and maybe um uh helps them shed feelings about being a geek when they were uh, when they were younger and now they're this amazing looking athlete but uh, if you don't, and I'll be curious what Dottie thinks, but if you if you don't accept that that may potentially have led to this latest injury, then I think you're just uh, setting yourself up to to keep getting injured like Tiger did. And uh, so, I, I wish he was a little bit more forthright sometimes on on things like that. But it's hard to beat up on him because he is generally uh, just very giving of of himself and his time. Mm. Dottie, that side of the game's really changed, hasn't it, since you played at the very top levels, even amongst the women, isn't it? The, the gym and the fitness and all the nutrition and all that stuff. I mean, boy, it's all new world, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. And and I think there is, um, at some point, there is, you're not getting as much out of it as you may be putting into it. And, and I think there's an optimal, you know, sort, of, sort of like the bell curve. I mean, I, I think there's there are benefits. And then there's this little area that you try to stay in that man i am at my best but then there's this this part of being a human being that says well, i can do more i mean if it's this if it's this good now i can certainly do more and it must be better uh, if i'm gonna take two pills why not three <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> so, um, i i had this really interesting conversation about 
with uh, Andy North and Billy Kratzer when we were at the LPGA's final event in Naples. And, and we both, well, all three of us feel like there, I don't know if the word is the racket, but there is a great opportunity that a lot of these trainers and nutritionists and this, that, and the other are taking advantage of mm-hmm. when what we really need to remember is that golfers need to be a flexible, be toned, C, be able to play 36 holes if you have to. Mm-hmm. Your, your cardio has to be good. Do you have to look like you I, – I, I don't know. I, I know there's, there's an adrenaline. There's all sorts of things that happen when you get to that point of that fitness. But I think when you're talking about what golf requires, uh, we need to be really careful. And I, I think there there is a there's an optimal level that people are trying to again take that third pill when two was was just fine was what the doctor ordered. Clay, you made a living playing the game for a long time. I remember Kel Nagel told me once he'd never stretched a muscle in his body in his entire life. It never crossed his mind that you would do something like that. Surely, that certainly that's not the case anymore. But did you sort of see a transition here? And you know a lot of the younger golfers coming up there in Melbourne, a lot of the really elite amateurs, and uh, I know that you know a lot of the pros as well. What's your take on the way that side of the game has changed? Would you have been a better player if fitness and weightlifting and uh, those sorts of exercise reasons working out had all been part of the game? when you played professionally, do you reckon? Uh, you broke up a little there. Um, but would I have been, I'd have been a better player if I'd grown up in this era and had a better swing. Mm-hmm. It seems like everyone's got good swings now when they were much rarer when we were playing because no one had cameras, so no one saw what they were doing. So we practiced for five years without having a clue what we looked like. But, I mean, I remember Jack Newton telling me in the early 80s, maybe even the late 70s, he said, you know, fitness is going to be the next great breaks, great breakthrough in golf, and I mean, you know, it's it, it's kind of been a part of it, I think. But you know, the irony of um, sport in Australia in the eighties was that the two fittest athletes in Australia were probably Greg Norman and Pat Cash, and they were always injured. And Jason Day's always injured, and Rory's often injured. Tiger's forever been injured. So, so all these guys who are, you know, for all their increased levels of fitness are always injured where Sam Snead never missed a day or Cal Nagel or Peter Thompson never missed a day. I understand that, you know, the game's, the game's more about power now because of the equipment, but, you know, why are those guys always injured when Thompson and Nagel and Snead never were or Billy Casper or, you know, Bobby Jones, well, even Bobby Jones when he was playing, obviously he retired as a young man, but, you know, it was never, or, or Byron Nelson. But look at... So Interesting too. I mean, look at a guy like Nicholas. Um, and what did he? What did he do? I mean, there was never a s- specific workout regimen. He played other sports. Tennis. I he think played he did. Ten- yeah, a lot of tennis. Indeed. I mean, he did other things. And, and I think, I think that's maybe that's part of of what's missing now too, because people are going back to kids. I mean, they're they're choosing the sport and a singular sport so early that that's what they're training their bodies to do. And only that. And I, I think this is part of what we're starting to see, the, the breakdowns. There, there are a lot of overuse breakdowns. It's funny you should say that, Don. Charlie Webb said something similar quite a few years ago now, that her concern about the, this next generation of players was that they didn't play other sports. When she was a kid growing up in Queensland, she played cricket and soccer and played in the yard with other kids and did all these other sports and tennis and all those, and eventually she decided on golf. That doesn't seem to happen anymore, does it? There are dangers associated with that. Well, I, I think... 
it's it's easy to point the finger at parents who are looking at scholarships and and this that and the other um, when they're you know when when the education and especially in the United States in a liberal arts school has gotten so crazy expensive that if they can get a college scholarship for their kid because they've sown some some excellence early on at a particular sport. I, I mean, I, I get the the financial part of it, but I also see the downside of it, and that's burned out kids and and injured athletes. And when you're talking about kids that are 10, 11, 12 years old and having major orthopedic issues, yeah, yeah, come on, let let's you know teach them how to swing the bat right and left handed, and play golf right and left handed, and play soccer and play football and swim and get on your bikes and all this other stuff that they don't even realize they're cross-training when they're actually cross-training. Mm. You wrote something really, or you said something really interesting to Ron Syrak in a uh, profile that I read about you. It was a couple of years ago now, I think, that you spoke from, but he's terrific at these sorts of things. And you talked about how one of the problems with um, sort of getting kids into the game and that sort of thing is the parents that all seem to think that if your kid's going to play golf, they want them to be the next Tiger Woods or Lydia Ko these days or Rory or Jason. And talk a little bit about that, Dottie, and the importance of just... Uh, touches, I guess, on what we spoke about earlier. Just presenting the game as fun as opposed to needing to pursue elite performance or there'll always be a, a segment of people who'll be wired that way, I, I imagine. But golf is a... I mean, I'm a chopper. I can barely play the game at all and I will play it for the rest of my life and enjoy it at least as much as anybody else who's played it. We don't market that, do we? Well, I... I think going back to our original conversation is that, you know, you talk about growing the game. Ugh, awful. Um, I want I want people to realize there are, are lots of different levels to the game. And it could be a kid that picks up golf, um, plays basketball, decides, well, maybe I want to run cross country or whatever. But, but oh, yeah, I can I can play golf with my buddies during the summer. We can go just mess around for nine holes. And then they don't pick it up again until they get out of college. And they realize it's also a great networking tool, stuff that they can use in business. Mm -hmm. And by the time you go through, well, I'm I'm having a family. I don't really have a chance to play a whole lot of golf right now. Oh, wow. Now my kids are eight years old, nine years old. Let's stick a golf club in their hand. Let them go have ice cream, get on a golf cart, go play in the bunker, do whatever. And next thing you know, there's another level, that generation that's gotten stuck on the game. So I, I think we sometimes... We get so focused on turning out champions that we forget that it's you know so much less than one percent of anybody who picks up anything and does it at that level. But you can continue to play it for your entire life. And I know it sounds old sappy and all that stuff, but you get so focused on turning out champions that you forget there's a lifetime of all of that out there. You still wander down and play nine holes occasionally, don't you, Dotty? Wine and nine, yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, terrific. Uh, yeah. Clay, your thoughts about some of that sort of stuff? I don't know. We know you came to the game through caddying and it was more a financial incentive and you fell in love with the game later and, of course, here we are now all these years later uh, and you are what you are and you do what you do. But uh, just see your thoughts on some of what Dottie's saying here. Why don't we sort of sell the fun part of game or what golf can give that's beyond certainly our authorities down here, our state and national associations are very focused on churning out high-level players, aren't they, to the critici- criticised by some for doing so? They are. Well, I think, I mean, from an architecture point of view, in fact, I'm doing an article about it for the magazine at the moment, I think we miss on things like Himalayas putting greens, 
which there isn't one in Australia and there needs to be more of that. I think we miss on part three courses. We miss on courses that are 5,000 yards long that people can play. I think we miss on nine-hole courses. I the architecture misses so much because it's just, you know, it's either building – well, the good thing is it's building great courses in remote places like Bandon Dunes and Bunbergle and Nova Scotia and places like that, which is great for public golf, Sand Valley, but it's not building really good, fun golf on tiny bits of land. But there was a funny – we Jeff and I, Ogilvy and I, we opened Royal Canberra just the week of the Australian Open. And the last green, which is the one green neither of us particularly liked that much, but um, it had a big tear in it. And the pin was just over the tier, and Jeff had a putt, and he didn't get up the tier, and ran back down to his feet in, in, in the match. And we went back, and after it was finished, we went back and tried it. And there was a little girl who, I don't think she'd ever hit a shot in her life. And I kind of gave her a putter and said, why don't you have a go? And she said, how do I hit it? Well, so I got behind her and put her hands on it, and she whacked this thing up the hill. I mean, anyone can hit a ball on the ground with a putter up a hill. And I mean, there was no way she could have picked a club up and hit a shot, but... She whacked this, and she like thought she was better than Jeff Ogilvie, you know, because she got this thing up the hill, and you could see the delight in her face. It was so just Himalayas putting greens are things that golf needs to do to make the game fun, and that, that that's kind of where I think you know as Dolly talks about getting little kids into golf, but it's not just sort of playing traditional golf, but golf needs to be more inventive in terms of doing stuff like that. I think, but. You know, she and, is better than Jeff Ogilvy too, in that sense, Clates, because she got the putt <laughs> up the hill and he didn't. It's, golf's a shot at a time, isn't it? And for that shot, she's better than Jeff Ogilvy and she can take that with her. For the, and don't ever tell him I said that, and I'll edit that out of the podcast so he never... But, you know, it just amazes me when you see how popular the Himalayas putting greens at St Andrews, that, that that thing isn't replicated all over the world, I mean, everywhere. I mean, it's just a, it's a great way to get kids into playing golf because you don't have to, you know, there's not that onerous thing of having to grip the club properly and hit the ball in the air. And the, it's well, here's an example where, where we live in upstate New York. Um, we have a, a state park golf course. It's 18 holes of championship golf, but we also have a short course. It's it's called the par 29. Um, there are two par fours in the nine holes, and that's where I played my first golf. Yeah. I played the par 29. And if you go by there now, it is, you can see the widest ranges of players from people who are kids, I mean, the bags are taller than they are, and to the, the Lady Senior League that is full every week. And I, again, I, I agree with you. This is where we're, we're missing the boat. That it's, it's not just championship golf. It's not just churning out great players. It's, it's keeping people in the game. It's that sustainability that, that Jeff talked about. Shaq, we always look for big picture stuff in golf, don't we? Why don't we get these little things right? And I know you've talked about it, and I've asked you about it before. I think the course is, is it in Berwick, the, Berwick, the kids-only golf course, which is yeah. an amazing sort of a concept. And why aren't we doing more of that, Shaq? Uh, the ball goes too far? I was just trying to help our drinking game players. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> That's um, next. Stick around I, uh, after the break. The ball goes too far. You know, just so many of the people who, who are in a position of power um, – and then also people who develop golf courses, they just, for whatever reason, um, have not pursued some of these things. And I, I really don't know why exactly. Um, I, I think some of it is uh, we had a period there where architects were uh, particularly uh, unwilling to push for some of these things and part of a master plan. I mean, look at Pinehurst now is going to have this 
amazing little facility right where the the driving range is for the U.S. Open, and there are a couple golf holes. And y- you wonder, oh gosh, what would it have been like if if Pinehurst had had this for thirty years? How many courses in the South, influenced by Pinehurst, would have built one of these? And and then there's also just for whatever reason, a lot of people believe golf is trying to hit the ball as far as you can because uh, the short game part is hard. And so being stuck out on a, on a pitch and putt uh, doesn't excite people whose big thrill is hitting it as far as they can. And maybe because their short game isn't so good, even though they really should spend more time on such a course because it would allow them to develop such shots. So there, there are all sorts of complicated elements to it, but mostly they're just really no excuses. It's just sort of uh, sad, pathetic that the, that this is kind of where the game is at, that these things are not valued. That said, we have a lot of people valuing these things, and, mm. and now, I mean, look what Tiger's doing, mm-hmm. uh, getting out front and making this a part of the, the projects he's involved with. You know, I mean, he went to the opening day of the of the, of the pitch and putt course at, at uh, Blue Jack National. That's he right. just tweeting about the one he built in Cabo that looks really cool. I mean, so good for him for, I think it's the most exciting thing he's doing that he's being out front and, and advocating for this kind of golf. And, uh, it's, it's, it's sensational. I mean, it really, and he gets it because he grew up on, he started on a par three course. So he, he gets that and he's able to convey to a developer and he has the name tiger woods to the clout to say, Hey, we're going to leave. You've got to have these two acres set aside for, for Himalayas or a fun pitch and putt. And a lot of architects, Jack Nicholas did not do that. Um, and Arnold Palmer didn't do that. And um, so, you know, in part, it's it's people who had the clout not taking advantage of having that clout. Everything I read and see that Blue Jack National, I've got to say, Shaq, just looks, you're right, he gets it. Tiger, looks great. It, it looks oh, phenomenal. Just perfect. <laughs> Dottie, have you yeah. seen much of the Blue Jack course that well, he's done? I, I've just, just seen what's been really on social media yeah. and what they've, They've covered, um, you know, on, on Golf Channel when he, he did show up to play there. But, Jeff, I'm going to throw this one word at you because I think this is where we've gotten off the rails. And the word's revenue. Everybody's worried about making money. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make more money if you build 18 holes versus nine. You're going to get more people out there. Oh, if I'm going to sell lots, I'm got, I've got yeah. more places oh, yeah. I, can, I can put all of that. And I think that... That's the one word. When the PGA of America started preaching revenue and the business of the game, that's when it started to go off the rails. Yeah. Um, yeah. People just aren't thinking about the game. I hate the word organically, but it's organically. It's talking about the game, not the business or the revenue of the game. Because if we take care of the game, that other part's going to take care of itself too. Of course. It's the classic case of the tail wagging the dog, isn't it, Dottie? Think yeah. about how to make the money and then try right. to make the game fit it. Whereas if you just make the game successful, automatically the right. money will follow, won't it? Because the one thing we do know is golfers will spend, won't they? Golfers will spend ridiculous amounts of money on equipment that will do nothing to help their game, and they will keep doing it for their entire lives if you can just get them hooked on the game. Exactly. Mm. Indeed. The irony of that whole, you know, short game distance thing, Shaq, is that my bladed wedge goes at least 30 yards further than Rory's best wedge shot. So in that sense, I'm, I'm longer well, than him, yeah. you know. So it's uh, it's funny how those things work, isn't it? It's a crazy but game. But at least today's today's golf ball can take that shot. You <laughs> That's know, true. 15, without... 20, 25 years ago, that yeah. ball would be smiling at you and it would, it would 
be done for uh, its life will <laughs> been over. So you have that going for yeah, you. But right. um, you know, one other thing that is kind of interesting, uh, a lot of these courses that are adding these facilities are looking to add a, a pitch and pot or a Himalayas, and they are out there. It, it's ironic that the thing that's driving it is the thing that is also hurting the game. The idea that golf takes too long, and the 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 the, the days of the dad going out on Saturday and being gone all day and not being with the family and all that that's 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 cited as why people play less. Ironically, a lot of these courses that are adding these facilities are doing it so that uh, a parent has a place or seniors or beginners have a place to hang out and, and then somebody can tag along with them and show them the game. So it's kind of a weird time in that, uh, I mean, some of these forces are, are leading to positive change and then and then i think when you throw in a place like a pinehurst or bandon dunes uh it's gonna it is we are gonna see more places do it just because people go to these places and they get they get an idea and they take it back to their course yeah, indeed. Uh, unfortunately the damage that's been done by not by not having these things sooner is is uh, profound it's funny do you remember a couple of years ago jeff when we had jeff ogilvy on the week of the open championship if i recall he'd been on a sojourn with his mates around scotland playing golf and i think he was at uh, turnbury did he not tell us, Clates, that he just it was nine o'clock at night? He just walked off the pitch and putt course with his five year old yeah, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most yeah. funny day. Yeah. It's and you know you hear that. Well, you think, well why? why? Why don't we? It's crazy, you know. Well, I mean, we used to stay. At, you know, we'd stay at Glen Eagles every year when the Scottish Open was on. Every night, Seve would be out there on that little lousy little par three course out the front. Of, it was just a you know it was a really rudimentary little golf course out the front of the hotel. And Seve would be out there with his mates pitching the ball around, and <laughs> I mean everyone has fun doing that stuff. Yeah. And by the way, yeah. that course, uh, Martin Eber did it. And I, Dottie, I don't know if you've seen it since they they rebuilt it because I think he just it, it just reopened with the remodel of the course. But he he designed it in a way where it can be played as uh, eighteen holes. Um, I believe there's about a thirteen or twelve hole uh, set or routing, and then there's about a seven hole that that could play longer, and the shots can just be longer. And so so not only is it eighteen and fun, but it can also be tweaked a little so that if better players want to play some a little tougher shot, uh, they can do that as well. I mean, it's just it's just so neat. Uh, they just did a beautiful job. I've I've not seen it since Martin redid it, but I can tell you when we did the Women's British Open um, on ESPN, there was it. I guess I guess two years ago now, um, we were out there every night. You'd finish dinner, you'd grab yeah. a glass of wine, and everybody went down there, and there were you know side bets and team matches, and you, I mean you actually needed a couple of different scorecards in your back pocket. <laughs> Because there was so much junk being flown around. Oh, it was just a blast. I mean, you spend 45 minutes to an hour down there, and you've had – it's that golf experience that doesn't have to be, you know, the championship, 18 holes, or whatever it is. But that's that's those little levels of golf that I think that we've we've really realized that we lost. We don't, well, we don't see that on TV, do we, Dottie? Television golf is all about – big-time golf, professional tournament golf. I mean, there's tournaments every week on the TV. But the ones we really take notice of, the big ones, the master, there's not a lot of trash-talking and side-betting going. It's pretty serious business, isn't it? How do we balance? Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's, you know, the tension of the final nine holes of the Masters is one of the great two hours of the year every single year. But how do we balance that with some other fun stuff? I mean, what what role does television play in trying to promote some of these things? Well, I, I think 
I, I'm obviously partial because I've done so many of these now, but the Latin America and the Asia Pacific amateur are those events that while they're on television, you're able to tell the stories and understand the stories of, of these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the, the last day at the Latin America tournament, two guys in the last three ball were best friends. They had the same teacher and they were high-fiving each other and they've got a trip to the masters on the line. And, and it was just, it was wonderful. And I think too, uh, what's going to happen in new Orleans this year is going to change up maybe how we see every week of televised golf when they're going to, have uh, the change of format. So there'll be match play on the PGA Tour schedule, match plays going back to the LPGA schedule this year. Um, and then you're going to have the team format in New Orleans. And I think that's going to be something that could fuel some other really good changes. Just just yeah. on the team format thing, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Shaq and Clates. Uh, talking to Scott Hend at, um, at Royal Pines, he watched the World Cup of Golf the week before at Kingston. It was fantastic. But Clates, you were on the ground, as was I. I think we probably, everybody sort of felt... The foursomes are sort of interesting to watch, but one round of it's kind of enough. Hend had this idea. I'll start with you, Clates. Make the final round Ambrose or Scramble, as you call it in America. What do you reckon about that, yeah. Clates? How much fun could that be? Well, I just thought it was too easy to, for one guy to make. Or it was too easy for a caddy to make $125,000 that week, <laughs> which was 10% of what the winner's <laughs> price was. So Ollison and Kelson got $1.25 million for... I mean, it wasn't very onerous golf. It was two lots of foursomes and two lots of four balls. And making a scramble would be making it make it even easier. For me, the last day should have been stroke play, and and they, and they both counted aggregate. So that, oh. You know, oh, that's interesting. So, Real golf. So oh, that's was, wow. You know, I like you, that. You at least yeah. earned your one point. You, you know, at least the, you know you earned your one point two five million dollars. Whereas a scramble yeah. and a foursomes and a four ball for that hmm. much money, nah. Would me. you would you cut after fifty four just to get the field uh, trim just a little bit for that last round? If you since everybody's going to play their own ball, yeah, you probably would. Yeah, you know, yeah. Give, you know, and give the guys who missed the cut a hundred thousand dollars each is probably what they got. Well, no, they don't need that much. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah but yeah, they probably yeah. do actually. But, Jeff, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a great idea because I, I got to be honest with you, the foursome stroke play. I think is is it's is laborious, fascinating and it but it's tedious. but it's you know foursomes is great as match play as stroke play it's it's asking a lot I mean they're all good and the chances of somebody really taking somebody down and being a burden uh, these days aren't that great but it's still it's just it's a tough four man in stroke play yeah. uh, it's one really meant to be a I think one round match. of it your real golf yeah, fan will yeah, watch the Thursday round and yeah. okay that's fine good you know the plates we're the gonna have to send us to. Jay Monahan, maybe they can make this tweak at New Orleans. I think that's a that's a like phenomenal uh, twist on that. Yeah, I don't think mm. they'll stick with the two forces. Now, Adani, to four ball. I don't think they will in the long run, Jeff. I think they will. Can be I, I want to ask? You go, go. Dottie, you 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 triggered a thought. Now this is you're probably one of the few people that I can I can ask this of. And Clates and I have, I believe, discussed this, um, and it's. It's something that now I, I love the camaraderie. I love what you're saying about the players rooting for each other more. But you were a pretty fierce competitor. And I actually start to get uncomfortable sometimes with this sense that the players are okay, that they, that they are okay with their the success of their their peers to the point where like, well, this week is your week and that'll be my week next week. And that seems like a generational thing. And where I see it getting kind of unseemly 
and where it makes me uncomfortable, and, and I, I'm sure you've seen this at tour events, where play, a player will chip up to the hole uh, or hit a wedge uh, shot, and, and they will really. leave their they'll leave their ball down so that somebody else chipping from the other side might get it as a backstop instead of marking it. And I feel like that's a change in the, it's like, a, it's, it just seems creepy to me. Have you, have you seen that? I am with you 150%. Um, it, I, it's, it's a I, hard thing to explain to people. You have to see it in action, right? <laughs> yes, you have I mean, to see it in action. And then they always bail back and say, oh, but it was in the interest of speeding up play. Right, and, right, right. Yeah, oh, right, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. My dad told me, uh, now my dad played professional baseball. He made it for the majors for, as he calls it, a half a cup of coffee. And <laughs> my dad was a hard-nosed competitor. And I got 99.9 of that percent from him. But he's, he told me, I was in high school, or I might have been just getting ready to call it college. He said, I'm going to tell you one thing. Nobody is out there rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> and just remember that. Um, he said, you know, my teammates, you know, coming up in the minors, they might have been really glad for you when you got called yeah. up to the majors. But they weren't all that disappointed when they saw you come back into the Mud Hens locker room and playing, mm. <laughs> playing AAA again either because they knew they had an opportunity to maybe get that spot. And, yeah, I, I think it does get a little a little wigged um, when it when it comes to that. I mean, it, uh, you, you lose you lose fair and square. But what I did see from these two kids uh, at the Latin America tournament at, at the end was that they both wanted to win so bad. But if they weren't going to win, they wanted to see their buddy win. And, and right. they were both grinding their brains out. Um, but they weren't disappointed when it was a guy that they knew were, had worked really hard, got the job done. Clay, you were on the verge of agreeing with these other two. I mean, that's serious golf nerdery, isn't it? Being upset by someone not marking their ball on the green, I, or maybe well, you have to look, play at a higher level hey, than me for this to make any sense. I think you'll defend me on yeah, this. Yeah, I this, think you it's, will. It's almost a form of ch- cheating. Ooh. I mean, let's be honest. We um, hard, but yeah, we yeah. I, I spoke with I spoke. We're at the Olympics. I spoke with John Hopkins about it, who's, who's the Australian rules guru, and it's clearly the most abused rule in the game. On the fifth green on Sunday, Suo chipped it up about a foot from the hole. And Charlie Hole was in the bunker. And Charlie said, it's fine, just leave it there. I went nuts. It's like, Sue, go mark your ball. She said, no, it's fine. Yeah. And she got cross with me. It's like, Sue, this is, it's the most abused rule in the game. It's a joke. And, and, I mean, someone actually needs to whack someone a penalty for it. Just that's two shots, mate. You left it, I mean, you could have marked that ball. You left it there to help your mate in the bunker. Put two shots on your card and that'll be the end of it. But, well, that, I mean, that, and that goes back to, I mean, if you're talking about the rules, I mean, there's a there's an unbelievable word in there called intent. <laughs> mm. Like there, there was, were you intending to do that? And and if there's collusion between players, we got a major problem. But it goes on. I'm a, I spoke to Finchie about it last year. I mean, and he said we he said all the time on TV. I mean, everyone sees it. Yeah, and it's almost yeah. He's called he's called kids, it out on the air a couple times. He has. Yeah, 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 it's almost the point where these kids don't even know it's a rule, or or, or don't even know it's not okay to do it. Correct. You know, it's Correct. Just like that's where I don't that. like. Yeah, that's why I don't like using the cheating word too much because I I think you're right. I think there's a group of players who've been reared uh, in a game where that yeah you do that is to just help your playing partners. That that's yeah. that's the gentlemanly part of the game. Uh, I don't see it. Great question, Chef. What a great revelation that was. I enjoyed all of that. 
discussion. That was fantastic. Any sentence that starts from Mike Clayton with we were at the Olympics, I have concerns. Clayton, I still can't believe that you're technically kind of an Olympian. There's something not right. Well, no, nor can I. Well, yeah, he was in the village. <laughs> believe me, I don't, wear, I don't wear the tracksuit outside of the house. <laughs> Good. <laughs> nor, nor should you. I saw a photo of it. Nor should you. Right. we only got a little bit of time left. Here's the decision we've got to make, team, and let's make it a democratic vote. We're going to talk about how the ball goes too far, which I think we probably all agree. We're going to talk about golf course architecture. Shaq, your vote? Let's do architecture. Come Good on. Idea. Yeah, we, we all know it goes too far. We've established we've that. Established that's, that's we've established that. We've done it. Golf course architecture. Now, Dottie, I imagine that a good deal of the, the way you came to know Mike Clayton was to, was talking about golf courses and whatnot. What are the golf courses that you've played all over the world? I'm not sure if you've been to Australia, but um, you've played all over the world. What, what makes for a good golf course? What are the golf courses you like and think that we should be modeling modern golf courses on? I, I'm going to give you the philosophy of the the PGA professional that I was so fortunate to have been as his as his life uh, came to a close. I was his only student, and he was also a, an architect. Um, and his philosophy was that a good golf course is one that is difficult for the best players to play, but fun for the others to play. And that's sort of sort of my bar. It's playable for those who don't play it at the highest level, but it's still a stern test for those who do. And it was a golf course that you could play in the air. You could play it on the ground. Um, you had to use some strategy getting the ball from point A to point B. And it was, um, it's still today, it's, it's a gem. And I, I was also really um, very lucky to play where I did just a mile from my house at McGregor Links in upstate New York. And it was a golf course that you put the ball on the ground and learned how to scuttle it along and play different shots. And the conditions weren't perfect. The bunkers were difficult. There was a lot of terrain changes. And to me, it, it should be interesting, playable for all and difficult for the best. Mm. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there we hear a lot of, and you know, there's only one way to sort of say things, I guess. That that's what it means. But what are some of the courses that we might know that to you fit those criteria that people would be familiar with? I mean, Augusta National, uh, Melbourne, St Andrews—they're the ones that tend to get thrown up. Do they? Is that the sort of thing you mean? Yes, and I look at a place like National um, out on Long Island, and I, but if I had one round to play, just one round of golf left to play. I would go to Salem up in Peabody, Mass. And it, I have a soft spot in my heart for it because it was where I played my first U.S. Open, but I also have a very um, high regard for the golf courses that Ross designed and the fact that he had so little to work with from a standpoint of, of moving dirt, um, having to work with what he had, whether it was outcroppings or big elevation changes and the more I, I went back to Salem actually last last spring, and they've been through like so many golf courses of that era, and going through a tree removal that is absolutely magnificent, and, and you'll get to see it this year actually at the Senior Open, the U.S. Senior Open will be played there, and it just the piece of of, of um, land that it's built on is so interesting, and I think there might be two lateral hazards. And one water hazard uh, at the what will be the championship 18th, and it's just it's a golf course that you can play whether you really are adept at playing the game well or you're just kind of bumping it along the ground. And, and I think that's just the way the way golf, to use Jeff's word again, sustains itself. 
Jack, something interesting there that Dottie just said, you know, and Ross not having much to work with in terms of being able to move Earth around, really the blessing in disguise in a lot of ways, don't you think, from that golden age of architecture? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and, and somehow he did it with uh, so little on-site time routing courses masterfully. Another one in that neighborhood where I think the property was actually even more difficult to figure out. And a course that was sensational, it's been sensational for a long time and has has had more work done uh, and is is even better from what I understand is Essex uh, County Club. And it's got a quite a uh, vaulted up the uh, Golf Digest list. It's really got a following now. People have really come to appreciate it and they're no longer hung up on it. It's yardage and really tough site, right, Dottie? I mean, that was really uh, kind of shocking elevation change in spots, but such a sensational course. So fun. I mean, you could actually, you could see where there could have been a stone quarry there. It's, it, yeah. it is an incredible <laughs> piece of property. People say the same about Chambers Bane. And somehow he made it work. Yeah. <laughs> made- um, yeah. Not quite so incredible. <laughs> it was already uh, no. the stone quarry, wasn't it? <laughs> but, yeah. It was there first. Clayton Actually, you know what? Yeah. Chambers Bay is interesting. Uh, Chambers Bay is a, a great example of the difference between a certain mentality of architects and others. Uh, that... Robert Trent Jones forced holes up the property to get a view of the water. And the group of architects today uh, would have taken the land that he he passed on, kind of staying down on the low-lying, low, uh, kind of flattish ground next to the water and had kind of more of an out-and-back traditional links. And and it's just a different generation. They, they There's a group that wanted elevation change and downhill tee shots and, and views and vistas. And, and the views there are beautiful, but uh, those holes that kind of stay by the water and run along it are beautiful, and they're they're lovely, and they just sit on the ground nicely. And then you have these holes that the players hate it for a reason because they're just kind of forced up a hill. Dotty, how and not very gracefully. No, let's let's move away from uh, Ch- Chambers Bay and all that it gave us. <laughs> Dotty, um, how does golf course architecture and golf courses fit into the bigger picture of what we've been talking about with this notion of sustaining the game or growing the game or sharing the game, whatever you might might want to call it. How important is it? It's, it feels to me like the most overlooked element of the game. There's an awful lot of people who tell you they are not interested at all in golf course design or architecture, which of course is disingenuous because if they've got a favourite hole, they're obviously interested in architecture. But do you know what I mean? It's sort of viewed as this subculture and a lot of people don't want to talk about it. It's all a bit hoity-toity and a bit too intellectual. But how important are golf courses to all that other stuff we talked about? Well, I, I think it's... Well, we're geeks that talk about it, right? Sure. <laughs> what do we Welcome do? aboard. What do we do? <laughs> right, right. But what do we do when we go when we go to Europe or we go to even in one of the older cities in the United States? We don't go wow at big skyscrapers. We go wow at these interesting architectural gems, the Victorian pieces, the stuff that goes way, way back. And we stand there with our mouths open and then we go see well whatever high-profile building, and we go, oh, well, well, that was nice. That was just somebody, you know, in, in a studio engineering this building where there's the the intimate touches, the, the things that were so thought out uh, rather than, than just the angles and, and the type of glass that are used and all this other stuff, but really thinking about the materials that are used the strategy that went into figuring out why this golf hole was designed that way. Um, I, I think it, it takes a little effort and maybe that's what turns people off. 
Is it the case, do you reckon, Dougie, that even those who don't know anything about golf course architecture will innately enjoy a golf course? You know, Royal Melbourne would be a bad example because it's so well known, but will innately enjoy the experience of playing Royal Melbourne more than they will. I'm loath to name names, but the sort of course I suspect we're all talking about with the fountains and the lakes and dams and all those sorts of things. Will they innately enjoy that more without knowing why, perhaps? And is that important? I think it's very important. And if you give them a five-minute sort of preview of why they're going to enjoy it, um, they might actually see through that that geeky prism that that we see things through, yeah. uh, that you can play the ball on the ground and you can putt out of a bunker now and again. And you, you can um, not have to hit the perfect shot and still have fun playing golf. You have to hit the perfect shot at the 17th hole at TPC Sawgrass. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're either... You're either there or you're not. And for the average guy, the average girl, that is extraordinarily frustrating. Uh, whereas you, know, you, go to, you go to Salem and you play uh, the tournament 12th and you're going to hit the same amount of same sort of club, maybe a seven iron, eight iron, um, and you can bump the ball in. I, I still have to cover a hazard, but it's a skinny little creek and I can put the ball on the ground and still make a three or a four. Indeed. Bates, you must have seen the light bulb moment for a lot of people. We played a lot of pros. You, good Lord, you play a lot of golf. We know that. Um, rarely does your Twitter feed not feature a picture of a golf course that you're playing that day. But the light bulb moment when people are sort of playing and they realise this at a place like Royal Melbourne or some of the other great sandbelt courses down there and what, what golf can be compared to what they maybe have experienced previously. Do you see that as being... You know, I know you and I and Greg Turner discussed this a couple of years ago. I just re-listened to that episode not long ago, about the importance of the golf courses and getting people hooked on the game. What have you sort of seen and, and what do you, how do you think we can sort of make more of what we've got to help people learn that the courses are possibly the most important element of a game? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess it's... I was so lucky to grow up in Melbourne where you just took that stuff for granted, where there are, you know, there are, there are more good courses in within... 15 minutes of each other in Melbourne than there are in the, in the, in the rest of the country, really, in, in a way. But, you know, it's hard growing up in Melbourne because you fall in love with Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath and the Sandbelt. And, and it's, you know, you don't realise that you're seeing golf and it's almost, it's outside of the Lynx courses in Britain, golf in its purest form, really. Mm. So, you know, you go to other parts of the country where the golf is not so good and you realise perhaps why it, why it struggles because it's, because, Ultimately, uh, people keep going back to golf, I think, because the golf courses are interesting and fun to play in. You know, as Mackenzie said, unless you build courses full of intricate problems, people get bored with it. And that, they don't have to be difficult problems, but they've got to be intricate. And I mean, holes have to ask interesting questions. So tease, just tease that out. For, for those who might not know, what do you mean by that? So you, what, are the, what are the elements that make that? Give me a hole at Royal Melbourne, or maybe a hole at Augusta well, National that's interesting, that most people would be familiar with. Well, I'll give you the 15th of Victoria, where I've played that hole for 45 years. It's 310-yard par four, deep bunkers down the left, smelly bunker 40 yards short on the right. They're closer to the green than the narrow of the fairway. The, the shorter the tee shot, you hit the fairway 70 yards wide. And you've still only got a nine-nine, so it's six-nine-nine. Yet every time I stand on that tee, I don't know what to do because the wind will be slightly different. I'll be feeling different. Pin will be in a different spot. The match might be in a different state. So every time you stand on that hole, it's like, what do I do here? And there's 45 years later, that hole's still as vexing as it ever was. So if you built the, the hole like, I mean, 13 at Augusta, it's 
been ruined by the ball in a sense that, you know, no one's hitting three woods in there anymore or three irons, but they're hitting five irons, so there's no decision. But if you put a tee on the 13th of Augusta, 300 yards from the hole, it's a way more interesting hole than it is now, even though arguably it's, it's still the best hole in America. You, you, you know, you, you made that a 300-yard hole and watch those decisions those guys have to make at Sunday at Augusta. What do I do here today? And, and that, the answer, it's a really simple question. You know, green eye on a diagonal, creek on a diagonal, a better layup short left, but a tougher pitch than the right. But, you know... If you ask that question, I mean, the answer is incredibly complicated and the answer changes from day to day. So that's what makes golf interesting is simple questions, but where the answer is really complicated. So well, I, I think that answer should change from day to day. Hmm. Absolutely, it should change. Yep. Yeah, so you play the 17th, the, the road hole at St Andrews. I mean, you play that hole in a multitude of different ways to bring on the wind and the pin and the. You know, if you're a shot ahead in the open, you can afford to go on the left-hand rough. If you're a shot behind, you better hit down the boundary line because you're not going to win if you don't. That's right. Uh, and, and that's a completely different decision than you would make on Saturday. Yeah. So, you know, so, so the, the 15th of Victoria, the, the, third, the, the 10th at Royal Melbourne, those decisions, it's a really simple question. But the answer changes every single day depending on a whole multitude of things. You never get bored. So, so, so that's how the game stays relevant and interesting is by architects understanding how to ask simple questions, but to make the answer complicated. Yeah. And Rod, you know, we go back to the first time at Royal Sydney, which thankfully Gil Hans will blow up, <laughs> is, that, is that, you know, there's a really complicated question with a really simple answer. I mean, what are you asking me to do? I, I don't know what you're asking. This whole is so, what are you asking me here? It's very complicated. You, you stand on the, mm. you, you, you stand on the third at Kings Neath. I mean, you can, it's obvious what Mackenzie's asking you to do. Go over by the bunker to play us, you know, play up the green from the proper angle. Go to the right of the bunker, and every yard you go right, the poor of the angle. It's a really simple question. It's a complicated answer. It was the first at Royal Sydney. It's a complicated answer to a question that I, 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 don't, I don't know what you're asking me here. Just smash it as close as you can, I think, Clates, and well, well, do your best. Ultimately, from there. that's what guys, you know, yeah. That's what they finished up doing in this train was tee it up and whack it at the green most yeah, of the time. Pretty much. Um, there, there weren't really a lot of alternatives there. Diplomacy really missed out when you opted for golf, Clates. There's no question about that. You, you'd have been a terrific diplomat. Well, the good thing is they've voted to do Gil's plan. So, you know, I'm really excited about what he's going to do at Royal Sydney because it's a chance to make a... Without doubt. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you compare Sydney to Melbourne. I mean, Sydney had better land for golf than Melbourne but made a mess of it over the last 50 years. But... Um, some of it's been restored, but uh, yeah, there's a great old course that Mackenzie influenced that has got a chance to be one of the best courses in the country because that you know they made the right decision about what to do with it. Very parochial of us here, Dottie, to talk about this, but Clates, I agree. I think that Gill doing Royal Sydney and Tom Doak to a lesser extent at Concord might be the two most exciting things to happen in the world of golf, certainly in Australia, for almost as long as I can remember. Um, and that Royal Sydney one in particular, I can't wait to see the next Australian Open there after Gill has done what he's going to do there because you won't recognise the place, will you? You really won't. Um, well, he's just, you know, having run through his plan, it's, it's, a, it's a radical change to, a, to, to, in fairness, an average golf course on a really good bit of land. And, and for the better. we better wrap it up because we've been here far longer than I meant to keep you, Dottie, but you have the honour of being the first ever guest who'll leave with some homework, and that is to go to Augusta National in April and explain to them why they need to make 13 a 300-yard par four. 
Oh yeah. How do you reckon? Yeah. That, how do you, how do you reckon <laughs> yeah. that's gonna go? Just tell them sure, Clyde said. Do that. Tell, tell I, them Clyde said yet. I, I think I'll, I'll launch into that uh, Thursday at about 4 p.m. Eastern. Yeah. Uh, yeah, during yeah, the we can move the, yeah, we can move can't, the can't we move the 12th tee back and play under the 13th tee as a short par four? Oh, my God. Uh. How cool would that be? <laughs> oh, Donnie, I hope you enjoy your two Masters because once you've put these plans forward, I'm not sure that you go back for yeah. a third. But, uh, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, fascinating ideas, no doubt. If only Clates was in charge of Augusta National, what a different world golf would be. <laughs> Dottie, it's been as fantastic as I hoped it would be to chat to you, yeah, and we really thanks, do appreciate Dottie. you taking the time because uh, you, you are yeah, somebody in the game. And it's, uh, golf is better for your voice being out there. So <laughs> thank you for uh, using our our little podcast as a vehicle. Shaq, always oh, terrific fun. to talk to you, mate. It's been far too long between chats for us. Let's not leave it. Absolutely. We've got let's go through this again, Shaq. Let's not go. Yeah. Let's not leave it so long next time, shall we? <laughs> uh, I, I would agree. <laughs> and, uh, Clates, I I see more of you than I do of the others, but still nowhere near enough. It's always great to catch up with you. Look, and, uh, thanks, thanks for I'm, I'm actually off to the – don't even be interested in this. I'm off to the, watch the Australian Amateur this morning where the leading six women – in the amateur were Koreans who shot a total of 36 under par yesterday, yeah. including one of them shot 63 on a on a 5,500-metre course, which is let, – let's not go there, but – It's too short um, for the, the women. The leading stages, six players are Koreans, total, tw- total 36 under par. Well, and yeah, we talk about it. I mean, they won the, the women's um, amateur world golf rank by, by what? I don't know, 30 shots, thousand, something yeah. like yeah. that? I mean, it's, I mean, it's just – There's no I mean, let up. I mean, I mean, the surest bet in, in the Women's Australian Amateur this year is that the four semi-finals will be Koreans. I mean, they're, they're extraordinary players. Amazing, really. They are. They are. It, it's quite amazing. Having said goodbye, it's quite amazing, isn't it, Dottie, the Korean influence in women's golf in particular? We know the whole military thing doesn't help with men's golf, but that whole Asian golf explosion we've been waiting for, it's happened in women's golf, hasn't it? Already, it has happened. And, and I think we're, we – I don't even think we've tipped – tip that iceberg yet um there are i mean these little girls that were you know in, in 1998 and you know the the siri park and the grace park and siri uh, and um all these great players that have come in the past they're they're just fueled by excellence and they're so disciplined and their teaching is so good that there's just more and more and more of them coming and we haven't even gotten to china and mm what Arya Jutanagarn's influence is going to be in that part of the world. It's, it, it's really, it's been, I, I didn't think I'd ever see anything like it. Yeah. I've not been to Korea. Yeah. What's, the, what's the culture like? I know you have, Clates, and you've sort of talked about the golf culture there, but Dottie, Dottie you would have been to Korea and no doubt seen it. Mean, from what I understand, the women golfers are bigger stars than the men, and we certainly know through that whole Han Ah Zhang in Ji Chun incident early last year, which we won't delve back into, but that was like a soap opera, they tell me, in Korea in the newspapers each day. Very, very much so. And uh, the competition between the players for sponsorship for the spots on the Olympic team, uh, it, it's it, there's such great pride. Uh, and, I, and I think, well, it's, it's national pride. There is so much individual pride uh, and competition between these, these players that it's, they're driving each other to become better. Mm, yeah, and it's a fascinating spectacle to watch, no question about that. Clates, we'll let you get back to the Australian Amateur. Dottie, we'll let you get back to, I'm not sure, you've probably got another project on the go that you're about to get started on. We'll let you get back to that. And Shaq, we'll let you get back to producing the world's best golf blog. Thank you all for taking some time today. All right, thanks, Rod. Thanks, mate.
Thanks, that, guys. Thank you. And that wraps it up for episode, I can't recall, 60-something of State of the Game. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you, and we look forward to doing it all again soon here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.